Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tara Kazim's gym in San Francisco is filled with NFL stars, MMA fighters, and the occasional politician. And if you dare to take on Azim's workout, you will sweat and you will hurt. But there is so much more going on. Azim doesn't just bring a Division I football resume to the table, but one of self-discovery from the projects of Concord, California, to his ancestral heritage in Kabul, Afghanistan. So when you walk out of that gym, if you buy into the maxim Azim is passing on, you will leave free of the disease of fear and empowerment to make your world a better place than you found it. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN Deputy Editor Paul Kicks as we talk about how the only path to believing in anything is to first truly believing in yourself. Now we present a feature by Paul Kicks. The people who loved Dion Jordan tried everything to help him, and when everything failed, they deceived him. They said they'd booked him a belated birthday getaway. He'd go home to San Francisco. They even bought him tickets to see the Giants, his favorite team. Jordan had passed that summer of 2015 in the dark, stale quarters of his house in Chandler, Arizona, grabbing bottles from his liquor cabinet, occasionally chasing the drinks with ecstasy. He had refused to answer texts or phone calls about how he was doing during his one-year suspension from the NFL for the drug test he'd failed. But the allure of the Bay Area trip and the seats along the third base side briefly lifted his fog of despondency and got him to pack an overnight bag and board a flight with his girlfriend, Paige Pettis. The couple landed, and while they did watch the game, they headed afterward to the office of Doug Hendrickson, Jordan's agent, and Pettis' co-conspirator. Hendrickson had braced himself, but to actually see Jordan, his stained coat, old and smelly t-shirt, disheveled hair, the 25-year-old looked homeless, so far removed from the defensive end Miami had drafted third overall two years earlier that Hendrickson actually feared for Jordan's life. Come with me, he told Jordan. They walked a couple of blocks and stepped into the gym on Front Street run by the trainer who was more than a trainer and the real reason for this trip. It was a sparse setup, no weight machines, very little gym equipment. The trainer who was more than a trainer was in his office in the back. Hendrickson knocked on the door. Dion needs you, he said. The trainer looked at Jordan, astonished. He turned to Hendrickson, nodded, and set himself to his task. When Jordan emerged from the office an hour later, he knew two things. One, he was moving to San Francisco, and two, he was not leaving the trainer's side. Everyone calls him T. It could stand for trainer or teacher, but really it's a play off his first name, Tarek. Today, one of the final days in July before NFL players head to training camp, T busies himself in the Front Street gym he named Empower. So many people are here. All-Pro Rams corner Marcus Peters sits on an exercise ball in a calisthenics space just off the main hall, nodding his head to the hip-hop blaring from the speakers, thumbing a message on his phone. He came to Tarek Azim in part because Peters' cousin, Marshawn Lynch, trained there. Azim helped Lynch unleash beast mode. Lynch still refers to Azim as family, and Peters calls him Big Brother, mostly because of what Azim has helped him realize away from the field. It ain't about ball, Peters says. Raiders running back Jalen Richard sits next to Peters on a plyometric jump box, staring at the rack of dumbbells against the far wall, preparing for the hell that will be his workout. Two years ago, Richard scored a 75-yard touchdown against the Saints on his first NFL run. What remains as surreal as that afternoon are the conversations he has now with Azim. 
take this past Sunday. He went to a barbecue joint with Tarek and his younger brother, Yosef, a cop who patrols the Tenderloin, San Francisco's toughest neighborhood. Tarek started talking about Afghanistan, how a decade ago Tarek had stared down Taliban warlords to reclaim his family's ancestral lands before shifting to a discussion about the conditions of poverty wherever they are found, the actions they excuse, and the lives they constrict. Richard nodded his head. He's from Alexandria, Louisiana, in the central part of the state, and had such a bleak and blinkered childhood that the 75-yard touchdown against the Saints, it was the first time either he or his parents had been to the Superdome. The conversations we have that I have with T, Richard says, I don't really have those conversations with nobody else. Brushing past Richard now is Azim himself. At 36, he still possesses the compact power he had as a D1 linebacker, and he walks quickly to catch up to Jed York, the owner of the 49ers and a client here. York finished a workout 20 minutes ago and is still in gray shorts and a black t-shirt. Azim leans in close so York can hear him above the blaring music. They are business partners, too. York so intrigued by the ethos of Azim's gym that he had a separate empower built within the Niners facility in Santa Clara for staff and administration. The best thing about T, he just cuts through everything, York says. There's no pretense. As Azim and York navigate the gym, they do so carefully because of all the Englishmen. The place is teeming with them. Yesterday, the coach of England Sevens National Rugby Club stopped by. He'd heard about Empower, the secrets that athletes learn here, and with the 7-on-7 Rugby World Cup at AT AT&T Park this weekend, his lads were in need of a place to lift. Brawny rugby players with black jerseys and pale skin are everywhere, squatting in the squat rack and prancing around the heavy bags, hard against the boxing ring, or just standing against the wall here in the calisthenics room, sizing up the six NFL and MMA guys who are about to take their orders from Azim. I catch Tarek's eye as he finishes with York and make a face that says, This is nuts! His smile says, Just another Tuesday, man. It's true. Luke Rockhold, a former UFC champion and the new face of Ralph Lauren, not joking, is here all week. Gavin Newsom, very likely the next governor of California, will be here Thursday. Dion Jordan, after meetings and workouts with the Seahawks in Seattle, will be back Friday. The music gets louder and still more aggressive, a cue for the NFL and MMA crew to finish stretching. I joined them. Because I wanted to experience what makes this place different, Azim had suggested I work out with the pros. I look around me as I stretch my triceps. The room is 30 paces long and field turfed with mirrors lining the left wall. What will happen here, I think? Azim walks before us. He is all broad chest and cauliflower ear and alpha male energy. Hollywood would cast him as a successful D1 wrestling coach. He likes to listen to people, and when he at last interjects, his honesty is often bracing. Take a lap, he says, in the voice of your favorite P.E. teacher. And so we do, out against the cool breeze, past the tech startups in the park where the homeless mingle, then back into the gym in the calisthenics room. We will do a leg workout, high intensity, using only our body weight. Azim teaches humility, he says, and if NFL guys and ESPN writers struggle to lift even their own bodies, perhaps they will pick up on the deeper lessons of our temporality, how death is coming regardless, and if one prepares for death, one can seize each day fully. Be not just a sack leader, but a great husband, father, brother, human. And they are not normal people, he says, the iconoclasts and cast-offs of the NFL and combat sports. The workouts aren't only about getting comfortable with discomfort, but metaphors on the redeeming qualities of the human condition. It is a threatening message, especially for leagues that ask their athletes to play and hit but never question. 
It is also a message that has allowed Azim to move from an outsider to the insider's insider, the sort of guru who turns away more athletes than he could ever train and declines routinely but also respectfully the offers from NFL clubs to come on as a special liaison to players. We start with a series of squats, then hold the stance when our butts are parallel to the turf. We stay there, frozen, and from that position, Azim tells us to lift one leg and stomp it down. Stomp, 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 over and over. The burn is excruciating. Keep it up, Azim shouts. We grunt. I let loose a gasp of pain. Still, we stomp. Time! It is over. It is not over. The other leg now. And this is one set of four. We do just as difficult movements on the floor to strengthen our glutes and hamstrings. Halfway through the workout, I feel lightheaded. Black dots appear on my vision's periphery. I think about how I will not embarrass myself. I will not faint in front of the pros. The dizziness passes. The hardest exercise is the last. Azim puts medicine balls on the floor. We are to squat down behind the balls and push them across the turf to the far wall. It sounds easy. It is also impossible. My hands ride up the leather casing and the heavy ball loses all momentum and I tumble ahead of it and splay across the turf. I try to get the ball moving again, but it's brutal. My legs quivering from the burn and when I think I found the right position on the ball, my hands inch up once more. Now I am embarrassing myself. We push the medicine ball many times. Some pros struggle too. Before my last round, I tamp down the frustration and humiliation that had powered my previous attempts. I exhale and study the ball. I choose a lower position and tell myself to be in concert, my hands and feet pushing as one. I grunt, and this time the ball glides across the turf. Azim comes over and kicks the side of his foot against the ball to slow my momentum, something he has done with Marcus Peters, who's mastered this drill. Like Peters, I'm able to keep my hands low, my hips back. Azim keeps kicking, but I cannot be stopped. I reach the far wall. He smiles at me. Good, he says. For Azim, emotional resilience and even physical strength are born from the moments that humble us. Azim first learned the lessons of humility as a kid in Concord in the East Bay. His family ultimately settled there as refugees after they'd fled Afghanistan. They lived in Section 8 housing. Sometimes they didn't have enough food stamps to buy milk. It was quite a contrast to their old lives in Kabul. Tarek descended from Afghan nobility. His maternal great-grandfather brought fighter jets from Italy and established the Afghan Air Force. His maternal grandfather, General Shah Wali, commanded and led Bagram Air Base, and was close to the Afghan royal family. There are photos of the general with Queen Elizabeth. Tarek's parents grew up with golden spoons in their mouths, he says, part of an Afghanistan in the 1950s and 60s that was open to trade and had a robust press, back when Europe influenced the country's fashion and many women chose not to wear hijabs. The communist takeover of the late 70s changed everything. Anyone who stood up to Soviet rule after the coup d'etat was imprisoned, tortured, and killed. The communist came for General Wali in 1979. He said it to his wife as he was escorted from his house, don't turn your back on Afghanistan. His family had to, though. They would have been killed otherwise. But the general's last message became family lore, and his daughter Mina kept his words with her as she and her husband, Syed Fazel Azim, raised their three kids in Mangi Concord. The couple talked endlessly of going back to Afghanistan. The duty each Azim owned the nation. Lay the bricks for a better life there, Mina often said, even as their children acclimated to the States. Dina, the oldest, played volleyball. Tarek and Yosef took up taekwondo before Tarek found boxing, then soccer, then track. In the East Bay's immigrant communities, I used to get bashed all the time, Tarek says. Look at him. He's doing all the white boy. Tarek needed the distraction. 
His father had episodes of manic depression. Tarek remembers one time as a boy when he climbed a fig tree. His dad loved figs, and when Tarek had grabbed enough from the branches, he bundled the gift in his shirt and ran back to the house. He was sitting on his bed, just sitting there, staring straight ahead, Tarek recalls. The young son yelled, Dad, Dad, but Syed kept staring. He wouldn't look at anything but some point on the wall. Tarek, scared, dropped the flags to the floor. He tried kissing his father to shake him from his trance. When that didn't work, he ran from the room and called 911. The ambulance took Syed away in a straitjacket. Syed's mental illness became something like the menial jobs he and Mina worked that the Azim family simply dealt with. We grew up like, hey, give dad his medicine, Tarek says. Tarek found a release in football. He'd come to the sport late, starting as a kicker on the freshman team, soccer carried ancillary benefits, and discovered he liked hitting people more. I got addicted, he said. With his background in boxing, he had great hand-eye coordination and became a vast, aggressive outside linebacker. He dreamed of being the first Afghan-American to make the NFL. He averaged a sack a game his senior year and led the Ignacio Valley Warriors to the Northern California Sectional Championship. After two years at Ajuco, Fresno State saw promise in Azim, but couldn't settle on where to put him. He moved from linebacker to rushing defensive end to fullback. The Bulldogs coaching staff said they'd return him to outside backer for his senior year. Just before it started, Azim ruptured discs near his spine. The surgery and recovery time consumed almost all of his season. Still, he remained optimistic. With a good pro day, Azim just knew he could latch on to an NFL team. While Azim trained in the early months of 2004, his father had returned to Afghanistan. Large swaths of the family's ancestral acreage in Kabul and in the Kunar and Nangahar provinces, where Tarek's family was akin to tribal royalty, were being sold off, often to warlords, and without Syed's blessing. He had to reclaim it. Tarek loved his father. Syed was kind and gentle. Could the aging man really stare down a warlord? Would he, in his native land, have another flare-up of the illness that had worsened in the States? Syed never pressed, never even asked Tarek to join him, but the son knew he had a choice. Fealty to Afghanistan or to his dreams of the NFL? The question was really the loudest refrain yet of the chorus he'd heard his whole childhood. Will you lay the bricks for others or lay them only for yourself? Days after Tarek graduated from college, Syed got a call from a number he didn't recognize. Hello? Dad, it's Tarek. What's this, Syed said. Some Skype number or something? No, I'm in Dubai. Tarek was calling from a phone at the airport. I arrive in Kabul at 10 a.m. your time. His younger brother, Yosef, had told Tarek not to go. It's chaos, he said. The American-led invasion in 2001 had snuffed out the members of Al-Qaeda who trained in Afghanistan, but now, some two and a half years later, with America fighting a second war in Iraq, Taliban warlords and other tribal sects had re-emerged, battling over old territories. The Afghan government was too weak to stop them. It was so unsafe in Kabul at the time, Pulitzer Prize winner Steve Cole wrote in Directorate S., A Clandestine History of the U.S. War in Afghanistan, that when an SUV and a heavily armed American convoy one day accidentally struck a woman wearing a burqa, no soldier stopped to get out. No vehicle in the convoy even slowed to see if the woman was alive. If American convoys stopped, American convoys risked getting blown up. The vehicles continued to the airport where they picked up Hillary Clinton, then a U.S. senator and a vociferous champion of the rights of Afghan women. Tarek Azim flew into that same airport about six months later. He had bad intentions, he says. He'd learned that some of his Afghan relatives had been the ones to secretly sell plots of his father's acreage. 
to get the land back, especially from the warlords whose attitude was, try to get me off it. I would react however they acted, Tarek thought. If they wanted to punch, I would punch. If they wanted to shoot, I would shoot. After landing on the decrepit runway, deplaning via a rickety ladder, and seeing on the ten-minute drive to his father's Kabul estate the effect of twenty-five years of war, the bombed-out detritus of commercial districts, a woman who begged and held up a starving and perhaps dead baby by its ankle, Tark was extremely disgusted with myself, he says. How could he add to this carnage? Wasn't this place, this much-mythologized place, which had become the fourth poorest country in the world after a war with the communist and a second with itself, and now a third featuring the Americans. Wasn't this place also in need of something hopeful, something better, to return it to the esteem the Azims had held for it? Tarek cried in the car. For him, what became as vital as reclaiming the parcels of land was improving the lives of the people who lived near them. In Kabul, Tarek befriended 12- and 13-year-olds and one day took them for ice cream. The kids stopped before a certain block, Block 12 in Tarek's nomenclature, because the city was too bombed out for street names, and the kids said they couldn't walk further. A rival gang controlled that street. Cross it, and gang members might bomb your car or throw Molotov cocktails through your apartment window. Azim had a thought. The only way people listened to each other, the only way people had listened to him as an immigrant and conquered, was through the language of sports. If he could get the kids to communicate, he could perhaps staunch the flow of blood. That's how Azim came to set up a neighborhood soccer league, which often played its games within view of Block 12. The Block 12 kids, curious, edged closer to the field of play until, one by one, they joined in. The league spawned from there. Neighborhoods taking on other neighborhoods, girls joining the games, Azim going door-to-door to explain to parents who'd lived through the 90s and the Taliban's edicts against music, singing, and women's rights about the benefits of a sport like soccer. Through these conversations, Tarek heard of a man named Abdul Sabur Walizada, who'd started a separate girls' soccer league in Kabul. Azim teamed up with Walizada. The girls laughed at their new, obviously American coach, who didn't care about the cultural norms that stated men couldn't talk to women who weren't their wives or sisters. Azim talked with anybody, in Dari or Pashto or English, if the girls knew it. He encouraged them on the pitch, joked with them off it, and the new girls' league took off with divisions and age ranks. Suddenly, neighboring provinces wanted in. Azim had planned to stay in the country a month, but here it was a year later, and the work as Walizada's deputy consumed him. He traveled, he cajoled, he carried out administrative duties until it was no longer a girls' league at all, but a nationally sanctioned women's soccer federation. It spanned a handful of cities and 25 teams. I used to stand and watch soccer and think, maybe in an afterlife I could play it myself, says Shamila Kohistani the first captain of the Afghan women's national team. It was a great thing to finally have a place where we, was ex- where we were accepted as athletes. In 2006, ESPN called. Girls aligned with the emerging national team had just won the Arthur Ashe Courage Award. Could a few players in Azim and Walizada fly to Los Angeles to be honored at the ESPYs? After the awards, ceremony, and parties, and after the seven other Afghans exhausted their questions about America, Azim returned to Afghanistan. It felt increasingly like home. Yes, he negotiated with warlords to reclaim his father's land, and yes, violence remained as ubiquitous as the country's corruption, but Afghanistan wasn't just radical mullahs, death, and bribes either. Here he, he, here he could continue to change perceptions. Here he could lay bricks, and maybe build something of his own, something even more impressive than the soccer federation. He had a second, bolder thought. If the maxim were true that empowering a woman liberated a family, 
What if Azim literally made Afghan women as powerful as men? What if he taught them to box? His friends and extended family said it was a terrible idea. Even his mother, the one whose lay bricks, mantra, and strong will lived in Tarek's favorite photo, an image of a radiant Mina enjoying a cigarette in Kunar next to her AK-47, even she thought Tarek had gone too far this time. In certain provinces, people don't want girls to go to school, she told him. How will you convince them to let girls box? Still, he couldn't let the idea go. Its bright promise lit his days. The confidence he'd had as a young boxer. What if women here had that? So how to convince everyone? Well, Afghanistan ran on tribal politics. Azim would simply have to paint for the largest tribal rulers a portrait of the future he saw. He isolated three leaders, the most menacing of whom was Mullah Wakil Ahmed Mutawakil, a high-ranking Taliban politician and former spokesman for the regime's brutal supreme commander, Mullah Muhammad Omar. If the Taliban officially endorsed Azim's idea, who could be against it? President Hamid Karzai's government had at one point placed Mutawakil under house arrest for the bloodshed he'd ordered or condoned, a predicament that did not necessarily limit Mutawakil's influence within the Taliban. Through Azim's growing Rolodex, he discovered that Mutawakil lived in a guarded compound on the western edge of Kabul. Azim didn't tell the American embassy about his plans, much less his family, but did agree to a request from a documentary film crew, which had learned of Tarek through the ESPYs and wanted to follow him now. One day, Tarek and Peter Getzels, a producer and director from Washington, D.C., headed out to meet Mutawakil. They drove to a mountainous nowhere land 25 minutes outside downtown Kabul. Amid this moonscape, they saw men with assault rifles guarding a small compound. Wild thoughts ran through Azim's head. What if it all went wrong and he and Getzels were shot in the back? What if they were disappeared? At the same time, an equally delirious confidence buoyed him. He could do this. He'd done it before. He'd just been honored for doing the impossible. Besides, he thought, the plan had to work. The one thing he'd intentionally left in Kabul was a gun. He and Getzels were led to a room with red carpet and love seats. They failed to quiet their nerves. Mutawakil appeared, bearded and bespectacled and soft-bodied, in flowing Afghan garb. He looked more like an imam than a hardened political killer. They sat down. I played sports in America, Azim said in Pashto. He had given this moment a lot of thought. I understand community. I understand unity. I understand the power of sports. It's just not right that our kids don't have opportunities or are able to learn about themselves or are able to build confidence. Mutawakil nodded. The suspicion in his face softened just a bit. The pair traded anecdotes about Afghanistan and Islam and Dari and Pashto. One hour passed, then two. Azim's fear transformed little by little into something like hope as they moved into their third hour. Mutawakil said the Taliban, despite its reputation, wanted social progress and so would not interfere with Azim's wishes or harm him personally. He asked only that young women follow Sharia law and dress conservatively. No sports bras in the ring. Azim agreed. Mutawakil put his hand on Azim's and said the female boxing program would be a symbolic testament to a new Afghanistan. Go, he said, his face alit. Azim opened the first gym on the grounds of Ghazi Stadium in Kabul, where the Taliban in the 90s had beheaded dissidents. He wanted to prove to the world that Afghanistan is ready for social change. Without the aid of foreign governments or the guidance of NGOs, he worked with provincial governors and everyday Afghans to help open 36 more gyms with around 250 girls and young women training and sparring regularly. One of them, Sadaf Rahimi, became the first female boxer in Afghanistan invited to the Olympics. I wanted to prove that Afghan girls could do everything too, she told the international media.
It should have been a fairy tale ending, but 10 days before the London Games, the International Boxing Association revoked Rahimi's Olympic invitation, citing a curious claim about her lack of preparedness. Azim thought the revocation had more to do with Afghan politics and the anger from hardline conservatives that the boxing program had induced. But even before the Rahimi mess, Azim saw the Boxing Federation fall prey to what about me infighting and petty corruption. It broke my heart, Azim says. When all that hijacking shit began, I learned to not think that anything in Afghanistan was mine. He realized that perhaps only in the States could his bricks build a lasting structure. What stayed with him when we returned to the Bay Area in 2008 was that meeting with Mutawakil. He, Tarek Azim, an American civilian, had actually met with a leader of the Taliban, unarmed, and gotten the guy to bless his progressive idea. Azim had found a way to stare through his fear and accomplish something not even his mother thought possible. What else would people do when fear no longer bound them? He worked in various Bay Area gyms to test this question, and little by little his client list grew until it included MMA champion Jake Shields and football players from Oakland, Raiders QBs, Charlie Fry, and Bruce Gradkowski. They each found that the inaugural session with Azim did not cover the proper form on bench press. It was a sit-down that went something like this. Azim said they had a disease of fear. To move past it, he told his athletes to first imagine the worst that could happen to them now, today. Invariably, the athletes said they could die. Azim told them that they'd die anyway and that they needed to prepare for it, much as he had in Afghanistan. By preparing for death, they could fully realize the gift that was life and live as fully realized people, not just myopic professional athletes. None of this would be easy. To move beyond fear, they, tough NFL players and combat sport pros, had to first acknowledge they were fearful, which meant allowing themselves to be vulnerable, which meant being honest with themselves and everyone who walked into the gym. And if they sought this level of truth, they could, as the Quran put it, be excellent in everything they did. Gradkowski and Fry were in awe. They went back to Raiders coach Tom Cable. You got to meet this dude. Cable did. No one in the NFL talked like this. Azim was training so much more than players' bodies. Word spread along the West Coast and ultimately reached the Seahawks coaching staff. They had a running back who was underperforming. Perhaps that guru guy in San Francisco could help. Azim had opened his own gym in power, and within 30 minutes of Marshawn Lynch meeting him there, Azim pounded his chest and declared, My brother! The socially conscious Lynch already was living what Azim was preaching, so of course he would follow the game plan, what Azim's acolytes now called the personalized goals that emerged from that first sit-down. Over the coming seasons, the trainer who was more than a trainer helped pull out the all-pro within Lynch. That left hook of a stiff arm that went viral against the Niners' Patrick Willis in 2013, born out of the boxing Lynch and Azim did in Empower. Lynch's trip to Haiti in 2016 to provide relief after the country's massive earthquake. Lynch had always been charitable. That's why he and Azim clicked. But the trainer says, I try to normalize all the not normal dreams of athletes. The pair got so close that Marshawn began to refer to Syed Azim as, quote, my dog. So close that when Lynch needed hernia surgery in November 2015, Tarek dropped his holiday vacation plans and rehabbed Lynch every day for two and a half weeks through Christmas and New Year's to get the running back ready for the Seahawks playoff game against the Panthers. Tarek wants to be the one to take on the brunt of other people's problems or issues, says his wife, Megan, who met Tarek in 2012, as Empower started to draw the attention of Lynch and other athletes like Justin Tuck and Barry Zito. And Tarek also wants to be the one who alleviates any of those situations. One pro would test him more than any other.
When Tarek Azim game-planned Dion Jordan in the summer of 2015, you could tell he was broken, Azim says today. You could tell he hadn't loved himself for a long time. A lot of athletes hung at Empower before or after their workouts, but Azim mandated it of Jordan. With Dion, it was an eight-hour shift, Azim says. Get to the gym at the start of business, attend meetings with Azim just to see what's up, how I sell, how I work, how I build relationships, then train. Get massaged and stretched, lunch, AA, then back to Empower for more meetings. The gym was like my second home, Jordan says. As the weeks turned into months and then into years, Jordan chose as his actual home a rented apartment just down the street from Empower. With Dion, Azim says, trying to find the words, because while he has a familial relationship with his athletes, something else developed with Jordan. His level of dependency and appreciation helped me feel really valuable. Here at last was the calling equal to Azim's ambition, equal to his desire to give and not have the results tainted by outside forces. Getting Jordan back to the field, it was almost as if Azim had found his life's work. The bond deepened. Azim said they had to do a good deed a day. One afternoon, he and Jordan went to Subway and bought 100 sandwiches and drove all over San Francisco, delivering them to the homeless. They read a chapter of a book each day. One of their favorites was Purification of the Heart, a treatise by Islamic scholar Hamza Youssef. We of the modern world, Youssef wrote, are reluctant to ask ourselves, when we look at the terrible things that are happening, why do they occur? And if we ask with all sincerity, the answer will come resoundingly. All of this is from your own selves. Azim asked Jordan to visualize his return to the NFL, a once laughable premise. The world outside in power saw Jordan as perhaps the biggest bust in league history, but it was an idea that became more rooted in reality with each passing day. Set the tempo and the standard for your first game back, Azim told him. What will it feel like when you get a sack? Everyone will know who you are. Jordan smiled. It's a daily challenge to be better, he says, to be a great son, brother, boyfriend. But I've learned that's the stuff that's worth it. Azim wasn't surprised when the Seahawks acquired Jordan before the 2017 season. Knee injuries derailed the defensive end's debut, but when it came in Week 10, the venue seemed fitting. In Arizona, against the Cardinals, 30 miles from that darkened home that Jordan had once refused to leave. Midway through the fourth quarter, Jordan bullrushed Cardinals left tackle John Wetzel and knocked him flat on his ass, then pulled down quarterback Drew Stanton for the sack. It has been the longest of long roads, NBC analyst Chris Collinsworth said on air. After the game, on the charter bus, Jordan took out his phone and FaceTimed Azim. The trainer could barely make out Jordan's face, the bus was so dark, but he could see Jordan smile. We did it, T. We did it. Azim sits at his desk, hunching over his laptop in the mesh shorts and t-shirt that are his business attire, when his phone chirps with another request to FaceTime from Jordan. It's Wednesday afternoon, one day after my workout with the pros and a few hours after a high school football team trained under Azim, and Marcus Peters told the panting players as they recovered to get uncomfortable. What's up, bro? Azim says now to Jordan, who on the screen is shirtless and seems to have not long ago finished his own workout in Seattle. Jordan smiles. Sup? They've already talked once today, when Jordan relayed the news that the NFL had decided to no longer randomly drug test him, another sign of how far he has come since 2015. Both men would love nothing more than to be together every hour in these last days before training camp. A month earlier, as the Seahawks wrapped their spring-organized team activities, Azim floated the idea of Jordan staying in Seattle for a few weeks. Let them know what I know, he'd said. Jordan had finished 2017 on a tear. 
four sacks in five games. But if the Seahawks coaching staff had doubts about the sustainability of this new Deion Jordan, let them fall in love with you too, Azeem told him. Let them respect you. Let them believe in you. So Jordan had stayed in Seattle, but the dependency had continued. He messaged Azeem all the time. Azeem loved it as much as Jordan did. Minutes before Dion FaceTimed him, Azeem had said to me, obviously my ego and just my desire of wanting to be around my people, I'm like, I wish I was here. He said he was looking forward to Friday when Jordan would fly back to San Francisco to finish his summer training at Empower. On FaceTime now, though, Jordan is anxious. There's something he wants to broach, but it takes a while to say. He doesn't know if he should come back to Empower this weekend. Oh, Azim says. Jordan backtracks. He will if he wants. It's just a tight schedule. And then Jordan is stumbling again, unsure of himself. What do you think? The prospect of not seeing Dion before the season stings Azim. As Jordan's consigliere, though, the question is frustrating. Jordan has to start being the CEO of his life. They've talked about this. Well, what do you think? Azim asks. Jordan mutters something about logistics and difficulty, and then in his restless anxiety is a plea they both understand. If you want me down there, T, just say the word. Stay up there, Azim says, trying not to grimace. Since they won't see each other for a while, Azim asks if anything ails Jordan. My knee, he says. He had a minor surgery two months ago and complains now about his get-offs, a 50-yard down-and-back run used to test quickness and agility. Jordan sends Azim a video of one such run. He wants to know if, on that corner turn, his knee is firing correctly. Azim watches the video. Dude, you look great on film. After a moment, is it physical or mental? Azim suspects it's mental. It's physical, Jordan says. All right, Azim says, not believing him, but wanting to see if Jordan can stare through his fear about his knee, probably a proxy for his fear about remaining in Seattle this week, and find his way to the answer, a fragment of a deeper truth that keeps eluding Jordan. Why don't you walk me through why you think it's physical? Jordan says he feels it could be in his hips. Azim nods his head. Have you been doing your hip activation? It's a series of movements, a workout, actually, to get Jordan's legs moving with no wasted effort. Jordan says he hasn't been doing it as often as he should. So it sounds like there's a lot more on your knees, Azim says, because your hips aren't cooperating with your feet. Yeah, you're right, Jordan says, liking that answer. Azim stares at Jordan. He gives away nothing. In the end, Brick Lane is a funny business. For three years, you can stack bricks with someone you love. But as the edifice rises before you, the best you've ever built, you realize the building that will matter more is the one your friend has yet to construct, alone. Azim lets the moment drag out. Jordan frowns. I also got to get it in my head that I'm fine. Azim tries to stay as calm as he can. Okay, cool, Azim says at last, in a voice he hopes is level. Moments later, he signs off with Jordan and smiles. Joining me now is ESPN Deputy Editor Paul Kicks. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for uh, bringing me in. Oh, First off, what amazed me about this story is how much of this story is history. And what I mean by that is the genesis of Azim's whole story seems to be the rise and fall of Afghanistan from like celebrated democracy to Taliban rule. Yeah. Like yeah. that set the seed for all of this. Yeah. And if you if you start there and you talk about his, his tough early life in Section 8 housing out in California as a refugee, was there always talk about the lives they used to have? And what I mean by that, it seems to be a very unique part of the story. We've done 
many stories, you've worked on them, of people coming from very humble beginnings. But it's very unique that you don't usually have people in humble beginnings who are barely one generation removed from family members socializing with international royalty. Yeah, exactly. And that was actually part of the appeal for me with this story, too. The origin story is flipped. Mm -hmm. The Azims had a much better life in Afghanistan than what they had uh, once they got to California. Of course, you've got to sort of throw a caveat around that. That much better life ended with the Soviet occupation uh, and the years that they lived under Soviet rule before fleeing were horrific. Uh, you know, Tarek's grandfather was, was tortured and then killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Soviets, or rather I should say the Afghans who were backed by the Soviets, influenced by the um, Marxist ideology, hunted down anyone who was not like them. Uh, and that included broad swaths of what had been the ruling class and really just the intelligentsia of Afghanistan as well. And to your point, it's almost the extension of it is, well, not in the audio version, of course, uh, the story that appears online, there is that quote from Gandhi on the wall of his gym that basically says, My, uh, wealthy isn't possessions and gold, it's having your health. Yeah. And they basically, that's... All this family left Afghanistan with was their health. Was their health, yeah. So this like sort of reverse story, as you said, um, did this perspective prepare him, do you feel, uh, in his decision to be on the cusp of potentially rehabbing a back injury for you know, a possible legitimate shot at NFL opportunity to suddenly turn that into, I'm going with my father to meet my father in Afghanistan? I found so – we, we just touched upon what I thought was sort of the, the seminal story, which is the origin story. But mm-hmm. for me, the, the thing that really hooked me on this is that notion, this idea that he is faced with a choice as a young man. Mm-hmm. And does he pursue his own dream or does he sort of abide by what the family thinks is the dream for the, 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 the family writ large and then really just the entire country? You know, the brick lane. Yeah, the brick lane. Are you going to lay – for whom are you going to lay the bricks? Uh, and I found his choice to be so instructive for the rest of his life. And for those that have known him, I know, as you mentioned in the story, his brother was like, no, don't do, don't go there. Yeah. And for some of the other things he was looking to do, his, even his mother was like, are you crazy? Like, don't even think about that. Even though that would, they turned out to be successful for those that know him, does his path and his success on his path, does it surprise them? I think so. It also, to a certain extent, draws them to Tarek. Um, you know, the fact that his clientele lists includes Silicon Valley, Titans, the very likely future governor of California, um, an all-pro like Marshawn Lynch, the face of Ralph Lauren, and a UFC champ himself in Luke Rockhold, right? Like, these are people with diverse backgrounds, and the only way that you're able to bring in a group of people like that is if they are unified behind some sort of singular goal or singular message. And Tarek provides that sort of singular message. He is incredibly good at motivating people. Uh, and a part of that motivation comes from his own story. And it, and in business and sports, et cetera, we always, we write stories 
on our website here about like how can you copy their game plan? It seems that uh, we live in a world where we co- try to copy success, mm-hmm. and with exactly what you're saying, like this is not just oh, this is where you know there have been gems that we've profiled. Uh, uh, on our brand before about like, this is where you go to become a faster sprinter. This is yeah. where you go. This is such an unbelievable wide swath of people for how has someone tried to not sort of package what he's doing and have it's other places. Yeah. So it's, it's a great question because he struggles just with, he struggles with how to brand himself um, mm-hmm. because he is, the way I describe it in the story is he is a trainer who is more than a trainer. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you start to apply words like guru, even that doesn't really fit because guru sounds kind of new agey in a way that's not really appropriate here. Like what he's really doing is motivating people to be first and foremost tremendous. Well, I would say actually it's, it's the, I was going to say something else. Motivating people to be first and foremost great men, women, husbands, wives, and then on a, on a second, and he would probably argue far less important level, is motivating those same people to also be great professional athletes. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that a big chunk of his uh, clientele happen to be professional athletes. Right. Is there, though, as you say with his struggle to brand it, and also you say in the story that he sort of rejects some offers here and yeah, there? Yeah, he has to, yeah. But is there a plan? Does he have any plan to monetize this? Like more gems, more teachings? Yeah. So he's got a, he's got, he's, he's actually, it's, uh, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because it's one of the things that I wasn't able to work my way into the, work its way into the piece. Uh, so Empower is a, is a gem that exists now in many ways across quite a few different tech startups and more mm-hmm. developed uh, companies. And, you know, Judd York says that he has that in the Niners facility in Santa Clara. That's completely true. He also has what he's kind of positioning as the spin of like, so like the, the, the spin cycle or, uh, or soul cycle of, um, of boxing. This some, yep. is something he's called form that's starting to take off across uh, uh, the West coast. He's also got this app which he which he calls be human mm-hmm. and be human is sort of in line with his broader goals to sort of seek the humanity and the deeper truths of all of the the human condition and what it's really trying to do is just position people to be in a good headspace every day um and to it's kind of like those apps that just ask you to just simply be quiet uh it's actually i don't want to diminish what it does it's actually more involved than that but it's its goal is to get people to basically be inspired and to be kind to each other and be good to each other. And uh, and that's an app that he's developing right now. So he's got a whole business plan. He's actually, uh, su- uh, uh, I was surprised, if I can be honest, I was surprised to see how much he had thought through the business side of his career. He is much more than just some trainer to some NFL dudes. And is this something like sort of like the guy who founded CrossFit? Like does he have like the intellectual property Around this, or, yeah. Or, as far as I know, like the form thing is is an idea because he has such a background in MMA. Like like Luke Rockhold uh, later this excuse me in, in early November is going to fight for a UFC mm-hmm. uh, belt. So he has that familiarity with the different forms of martial arts and the different forms of boxing. So this form thing is something that he's really excited about because he thinks it's a space that he can sort of own, uh, and with that comes certain you know rights that go back to him. So. Going back a little bit to part of his narrative, I was wondering as I read this, how did he get those warlords to back off his <laughs> ancestral? I mean, I know we talk about how 
you know, the phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword. And yeah. of course they mean words and thoughts. And it seems to be the unspoken mantra of what he brought to Afghanistan, how you specifically mentioned when he met the, uh, the Taliban leader. Yeah. The one thing he didn't bring was, was a, a gun. gun. Yeah. Which is for anyone that has followed politics and what has happened since 2001 in Afghanistan. Crazy. Is a really usually a terrible idea. Yeah. I mean, like basically in the years that, ta- the, the years that Tarek was in, Afghanistan, everybody was packing pretty much all the time. Right. Um, so how would he negotiate with the Taliban? How would he reclaim some of this ancestral land? Uh, he would sometimes accompany his father. Uh, it ended up being a rather – the reason I didn't include it in the story is it ends up – that specific anecdote is because it ends up being something that's kind of prosaic. He just sort of used his diplomacy to say, look, we have these records. You're basically squatting. I understand why you think it's yours because you think you've purchased it, but actually that purchase was illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was through just basically a series of negotiations. And also, I mean, it's, it's not for nothing that the Azim name, uh, does carry some weight in Afghanistan. And, uh, certain people, maybe even certain warlords would sort of respect it. Um, mm-hmm. he said that he never had to, you know, go into any, sort of situation openly hostile but at the same time he said to do business in Afghanistan you kind of have to be a little bit of a gangster right. <laughs> with his mom's AK47 his mom AK47 yeah i mean i think what he means by that is really just like what the story ends up exploring right like afghanistan when he was there is a place where you can live in absolute fear if you want every single day mm-hmm. because there is a heightened chance that you might die on mm-hmm. any particular day or you can acknowledge that reality and try to live the best possible life that you can. Yeah. Um, and for him, that meant building communities despite these threats, um, even though these threats were there. And, and you learned, uh, as we've heard, like the story of like Marcus Luttrell with yeah. um, part of even the more extreme versions like the Taliban and these warlords in Afghanistan, part of this overall community is a community of traditions that they hold dear. And it seems that like part of what he's able to do when he talks to the Taliban is sort of play their own beliefs against themselves. Like if you believe in the true Afghanistan, then you need to believe in what I'm telling. Yeah. And he, he and I had these rather long and lengthy conversations about like what exactly the Taliban believed because, um, if you go back to the Afghan Civil War, and I promise I won't make this a history lesson, but if you <laughs> go back to the Afghan Civil War and when it started in the uh, mid early 1990s, there was this real sense of like, well, what sort of country are we going to have and what sort of order are we going to provide? And mm-hmm. the when the Taliban first took control, there were moderates among them who said, yes, we will abide by Sharia law, but there will be rights, there will be respect, uh, respect will be paid to all people. Over time, and um, now this depends on certain scholars how quickly that lapse of time is, but over time, uh, the conditions worsened. The Taliban's views became more extreme. You began to hear, you know, the 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 things about you know kids can't play marbles and nobody can dance and mm-hmm. there's basically no rights for women like that stuff happened a few years later. But when the Taliban was first formed, there was a more moderate clique moderate by its standards and that more that there that moderate click persisted even well into the 2000s and Tarek believed that he could still seek out individuals and speak to them from a from a place as you know he's a bay area 
uh, American. Mm -hmm. So his views, even in our own country, are pretty progressive, right? right? He thought that he could go into Afghanistan and find people who could sort of begin to agree with him. And he would argue that he succeeded. And when you talk about like the fear, like either choose fear or don't. Yeah. And it's interesting that you also you open the story with Dion Jordan and he seems to represent sort of everything that Azim is building. And like this isn't someone on a team with potential. This isn't an MMA fighter looking for the next level. This isn't a politician looking like to have yeah. that mental edge. Like this was someone who was at such a low point in his life, this professional athlete in shambles that those around him feared for his life. They, yeah. Doug Hendrickson, his agent was pretty clear on that point that he thought that, you know, he might commit suicide or just, he might just overdose or just drink too much. And as a 25, 26 year old, I think, you know, Dion didn't tell me this. Um, but I think it's probably fair to say this based on the conversations that I had with Tarek, that he was somebody who was really living in a lot of fear in that moment, fear of how far he had fallen, fear of how much, uh, further he could fall mm -hmm. uh and when he turned to Tarek, he was desperate and he saw somebody he saw this like this light that Tarek represented and said i'm just going to try to move toward that light basically i don't want to go to to heavenly with these metaphors mm -hmm. but like it's for for dion it was a real thing he was really in a bad place and then there seems to be a balance and a pull constantly with Tarek. and as you close the story also with jordan you can see there's part of him, like the the very sort of Western kind of what about me side, yeah. probably wants to say, I miss you, Jordan. I want you to come back to San Francisco and whatever. Like your yeah. knee, it's fear. Knock it off. Yeah. Don't be a baby. But he can't no. because the way he now lives his life, he needs to give Jordan not only the permission to stay because from your antidote, you can clearly hear Jordan saying like, I'm looking for you to tell me what to do because I'm going to do it. Yep. And- for lack of a better word, permission. Yep. And, but also, even though it was pro, it was a path, and you could see it as you de depicted perfectly pulling it out of him. He needed him to come to the conclusion himself. Yes. That it was in his head, and in, that put him in the right place. Yeah. And as you say, bricklaying is a funny business. <laughs> it seems like that balance is not just part of. It's one thing to have a like. I'm going to be nice today. I mean, like very simply, but it seems like even with the success that has been proven and what he's been able to do here, it seems Tarek, the person, that must be a tough balance to maintain on a daily basis. Yeah, I think you're really hitting on something that I, I'm glad you, you picked up on that because I wanted the reader to pick up on it as well. By the end of the story, I want them to see that like Dion was sort of his ultimate test case. Mm -hmm. Could he take someone in such a bad spot as Dion and, and create a professional athlete out of him again? And the answer is yes, he could. But then Tarek realized something. That that wasn't even the goal. Like mm -hmm. the goal is <laughs> it's it's self-actualization. It's can the teacher get the pupil to believe in himself on his own? Because that is the true mark of a great teacher. Mm -hmm. Having the ha the pupil having the confidence to say I can lead my own life now. So Tarek's frustration in that final section, it's twofold, like, you, like you're saying. It's like, 
on the one part that he definitely wants to he wants to see him he's mm-hmm. disappointed by that on the other hand he's disappointed that Dion isn't sort of as as Tarek says being the CEO of his own life mm-hmm. he needs to start reclaiming this territory for himself otherwise he, and forget the NFL like his his NFL days will end at some point but if he doesn't start to make these decisions on his own look to lead his own life he's going to spend the rest of his life as you were just saying a minute ago like constantly looking for someone else to affirm what he should do next. Mm-hmm. It's okay for you to do this. It's okay for you to do that. And Tarek's, one of his big res- resounding messages is, you know, claim what you want for yourself. You can be empowered. Like that, this, that comes out of that name empowered, right? Yes. And it seems that, well, as we've talked about a little bit with Afghanistan, that the living, breathing, current version of Tarek is – sort of a perfect storm in the history that his family experienced and passed on to him. It also seems that this movement in a way in modern athletics is also having its moment because of how much mental health and the acceptance of its importance has sort of like jumped from a stigma as a weakness to something to closely monitor. Yeah. It's, it's something to closely monitor and it's, it's almost like by acknowledging your weakness, you can actually become strong, right? Yes. Like every time Tarek is in Afghanistan, the first thing that, – that prepare for death thing is is actually brilliant because it's like, okay, yes, I can die. I will die. You acknowledge that weakness and then how can you go about living your days as fully as you can, as strongly as you can? Um, and I would even go like a step further here, you know, just as the discussion in a lot of pro sports has moved toward – uh, acknowledging uh, fear, acknowledging uh, to a certain extent, acknowledging mental health. Um, I think that for people that actually live that, they are met with resistance. You know, mm-hmm. Marshawn Lynch was a great running back who didn't fit into any team because he was mercurial. He was, you know, iconoclastic. Nobody really knew how to dealt with a guy who thought like he did because right. the NFL likes to stick people in very specific boxes. Yes. Marcus Peters, the same thing. Um, you know, he grew, he, he went to uh, a high school in Oakland where a lot of the black Panthers had really came to prom had really come to prominence. Excuse me. So he comes to the NFL at a time of black lives matter with a very strong sense mm-hmm. of what that movement means and how he can best position himself within it. And that is met with resistance uh, in certain NFL quarters. We saw that last year with the, uh, with the whole uh, kneeling thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Tarek's message in the end is can be seen as something that's threatening to certain NFL teams because it is so individualized. It's basically saying you can be the best on your own. Like find a way to dig deep and pull it out of yourself. Right. In the end, you don't even need me. Exactly. Like you can, can, you will contribute. Yes. But you are your own entity. You, you are, are not own. dependent upon the world around you. And once the once the athlete realizes that he doesn't need a, a trainer who is more than a trainer like Tarek, mm-hmm. well, then it's not a very big leap to say, do I really need a coach, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I want to be clear. Like Tarek is in no way saying that – you know, these guys, Anarchy. yeah, they, he's not preaching that in anything. He loves team sports. He played team sports. But part of that message can be viewed by certain teams as threatening. I will say that it's there are there have been 
a fair number of clubs who have approached him within the NFL to say that his message is so unique that they actually have wanted him to be a team liaison. Mm -hmm. And he's turned down those offers thus far because of some of the business stuff we've talked about before. He wants to build his own sort of name, develop his own own sort of – build out this training empire as he sees it. Well, you would see – you could – in. That would be the antithesis of everything he's doing because then he would sort of be beholden to the people yeah. who are writing his checks. Yep. Yep. He doesn't like that. <laughs> and so just to catch up though, you are fully recovered from the workout. Yeah. That workout was tough. Uh, I, I've, I've done, I mean, I, I've been a, a weightlifter in some capacity for about 25 years. I love lifting weights. I took on, Tark asked me if I actually wanted to train with the pros uh, and I said I did for two reasons. Number one, first and foremost, it had nothing to do with actually training. Mm-hmm. I wanted to develop a good rapport with Tarek. And I thought if he saw me going all in, he'd probably be more likely to open up. I got to spend a week with him in San Francisco. And just like the worst thing he said, the worst thing would happen is you would die. Yeah. The worst thing, <laughs> what's the worst that can happen today? Well, I could die. That's true. Um, uh, so I did that. I did that with him because I knew that if, if I got through it, right. Yeah. Uh, I could very likely build a good rapport and we had a great week together, uh, as a result. And then the other part of it was, you know, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to understand what it is to actually go through a training session, mm-hmm. um, I want to go through the training session, right? Like for so many of those guys, it's not just the training session. It's the hours before and after and the, and the, 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 the texts and the phone calls that Tarek has. Um, but, uh, to be in that, those training sessions are really an extension, a metaphor for what he's trying to do overall. And I wanted to make sure to, to experience that. Well, it came out fantastic. And something tells me this is the only beginning of hearing the name Tarek Azim. I hope so. Yeah. Paul, thank you so much again for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again. And we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories podcasts.